Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. A panel here raring to get over. Let's have a quick look at the front pages of the papers first. Uh, Sunday Times, Enoch Burke's legal battle can go on for years. Uh, please no. Uh, Sunday Independent, Donnelly seeks AG's advice on botched move for uh, Holohan. This was the secondment of the former chief medical officer, Tony Holohan, to Trinity College in Dublin. Um, the Business Post has a poll and the headline they're taking out of that is half of public unhappy with state handling of refugee crisis. Um, the Mail, which is like, it's a complicated story in a way, but we, we might get, get uh, someone to explain it to us in a while. But it's a secret plan to block refunds for the old and the sick. Repayments of illegal nursing home charges hindered by state. And like if this is if this is all accurate and true, there are it could be an enormous uh, situation where tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are uh, could be in some way due um, could could have been kind of had money taken from them for care of their elderly relatives or for care of themselves that shouldn't have been taken from them for going back years. Um, the Sun on Sunday has a very um, disturbing looking picture of a man being attacked with a shillelagh and a baseball bat in a pub in County Longford and uh, one of those assailants was was jailed last week and the Sunday World is leading with um, Regency suspect Jason Bonney's property interests. Okay, and to discuss uh, some of those things and more, our panel this morning, Daniel McConnell is the political editor of the Irish Examiner. Uremu Adejami is a Fianna Fáil councillor in Longford and the former Lord Mayor. Brenda Power is a journalist and barrister. And Kieran Mockenverd is the head of the School of Fionter in DCU. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Brenda. Uh, before we get into the, the meat of... Um, of that story in the, on the front of the business post. Kiran, would you just tell us about Rodney Edwards' story in the Sunday Independent today about the conditions that um, some migrants are living in? Yes, there's a very disturbing story by Rodney Edwards in the Independent today, headlined, Vermin Overcrowding and Nowhere to Wash. And the conditions described where refugees are being housed are very disturbing. For example, in County Carlow, there's a former roadside cafe where each bedroom is cornered off using wood and dark curtains. And it's likened to a changing room in Dunn stores that you've got one foot uh, each side of the bed. Um, they say that uh, uh, Ukrainians are having to walk outside, sometimes in freezing conditions, uh, to get washed. Uh, the children haven't been washed for days. There are reports of rats and mice spotted in food areas uh, because doors have been left open and children are having to play in car parks as they've uh, nowhere else to stay. Um, Another report from Limerick uh, states that overcrowded back corridors full of uh, bunk beds, women and children having to sleep in rooms opposite men, heat being switched off in the middle of the night. And these are the conditions under which uh, a lot of refugees are, are being housed at the moment. We, uh, the department says that um, accommodation has been provided for more than 75,000 people, um, including over 55,000 displaced Ukrainians. But it's, it's, it's very disturbing to read these reports. I mean, we know before Christmas, for example, there were 120 um, new immigrants uh, being housed in tents in, in West Clare. And it really begs the question. I mean, should how how can we not provide uh, decent accommodation for our, our new immigrants? Yeah. Okay. But and and look, it is a difficult uh, question. I think everyone agrees. So um, so Danny, then um, that kind of brings us to uh, let 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 we've that picture in our heads, mm. and then the the broader picture here is is a poll in the business post today. And look, it 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 is what it is. It's an opinion poll. It's a snapshot of a certain bunch of people. Uh, at a certain time. 
But uh, give us the kind of um, main takeaway from that. Sure, there, so there are three key questions asked, Brendan. And the first one uh, was, do you think the government is doing a good job at dealing, um, dealing with the Ukrainian refugee crisis? And about half, 49% said um, the, the, that they were. Um, um, or, uh, or sorry, they, sorry, forty-nine percent said that they weren't doing a good job. Forty-three percent of the government was doing a good job, and eight percent didn't know. The more interesting question, from my perspective, was, you know, Irish people. The question was asked: Irish people welcome refugees on the whole, and it's just far-right activists who are opposing this. Thirty-four percent disagree with this, and that's a hardening of that position. You know, so whereas fifty-five percent basically said. They are very welcome. It's just, you know, kind of right-wing activists who are saying that they're not welcome here. One in three, 34%, disagreed with that statement. So, that, And that, that represents, according to Michael Brennan, who's the author of this sort of story, said that, you know, there is a hardening of positions as long you know, the longer this crisis goes on. And look, we don't want to ascribe anything that's not there. No. But often what pollsters will do in order to get people to tell them the truth about things that might seem unpalatable in, in a face-to-face situation is don't ask what do you think, ask what do you think other people think. And mm. if a third of people are thinking, no, it's not just far right, it does suggest that. Uh, uh, certainly, some of that third of people have that opinion. Absolutely, them, and, and, and I take yeah. like I mean, the caveats with polls are always there, and we have to, and in terms of the methodology. But what was also very interesting is they asked a question around, you know, would you support the government using powers to install modular housing for Ukrainian refugees without planning permission in my area? And it was quite a split. You know, 45% said no, 46% said yes, and 9% don't know. So, you know, what we're getting into now, many months after the, the, the large influx of people, is the reality that these people are not going, you know, that, and, you know, we are we have very clear legal obligations. It is absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, I have never bought this narrative that Ireland is full. It, it's the state's capacity to, I suppose, get their its house in order to, to give them a proper, uh, you know, place to stay. But what is what you're seeing here is the failure of government to handle this, you know, uh, uh, issue properly being fleshed out in this poll. The use of modular housing has been long since talked about and we're still only kind of getting, you know, going in relation to this. But, you know, for the government to use powers, special powers, to put modular housing in areas without planning permission and without having to go through all the rigmarole and public consultations and all the rest of it, it's brought over a very divided picture here in this poll, which is very, very interesting. Yeah, and also they, they did ask as well uh, about the building of modular housing without planning permission for people on the housing list. Yes. And more people would be accepting of that in their area. Yeah. Um, Brenda Power, like you don't want to be dismissing people as deplorables either. Um, is is some of this understandable? It is. And there's a very interesting analysis of that poll by Richard Caldwell of Red Sea. And he says, you know, we've, we have traditionally been a very welcoming country and that's something we've always been very proud of. He said, but there are signs in the poll that this is beginning to change as a result of several factors. Firstly, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine meant a much larger influx of re- refugees looking for assistance. Secondly, that the British government has got a lot tougher on immigration and that has pushed people to 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 seek all the alternative options here. And I think if you, if you heard some of the interviews with some of those asylum seekers who are now being basically given a Dunstores voucher and their phone number taken and told, go off and find yourself somewhere to sleep, a number of them said they had come from the UK. So that is clearly a factor. Thirdly, obviously, we're in the middle of a housing crisis, a lack of affordable housing for, for Irish people. And I, I think that that particular finding in respect of modular housing, which suggests that 63% of people would be quite happy to see modular housing without planning permission, provided for those on the housing list, in other words, Irish people, and, and that there, there's less enthusiasm to see that, that housing provided for, for refugees, even in Ukrainian refugees, for whom there is, I would thought, a great deal of sympathy and a welcome. So, you know, you have, he says, a phrase I can't stand, but it is obviously applic- applicable here, the perfect storm. You have a lack of housing, you have pressure on accommodation, rising numbers of refugees to be, to be accommodated, and that's, that's where we are. And what's interesting, Brendan, very quickly, you know, I was speaking to a couple of cabinet ministers about this in the last few weeks, and they, they acknowledged that like, money's not the problem here. They have money here. That, that social cohesion piece is going to be the real difficult, and they haven't, they haven't got the answer as to how to deal with that. And we saw communication issues around East Wall and you know, in other parts of the country. But what they, what, there is that recognition that the state's capacity to handle this properly is one that they, they just haven't cracked just yet. Remember, you picked this story as well. Just I'll bring you in in a second, Kieran. Yes, uh, Brendan. I think um, as well in terms of the um, the results of the poll, um, I, I think it can be ignored that it's uh, largely in relation to people's circumstances with each passing day, depending on your priority or your key issues, your response to a poll will differ. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it really drives home the importance, of, in my view, for the government to engage 
very quickly with people who are, I suppose, sharing their uh, dissent on any issue to be able to understand and explain the situation. We're talking about modular housing coming into uh, places without planning permission. What is coming with the modular housing? What infrastructure is going to be put in place? I think highlighting those key pieces of it would help people to react to these questions, I think, a lot more objectively, because sometimes there are close questions that are asked. There is kind of no a lack of explanation as to what wraparound services are coming with these modular houses. I, I think um, in the short term, making them available to Ukrainians or indeed anybody who needs them is very important. It increases the housing stock in communities. As a local councillor, I'm always looking for more housing in my community. And please God, when the war ends, and um, I, I would imagine that a, a large number of Ukrainians would choose to go back and rebuild. Okay. These modular houses would be available then for more people in the community. Okay, this, this so ha- have you, can, ju- just one sec, Brenda, have you had any experience of this kind of thing in Longford? Is there been any situations down there? Yes, indeed. There were, uh, there was uh, engagement with the Longford, the local authority in Longford to identify sites for um, for modular housing and uh, regretfully one of the sites that was identified is a site that has been um, I suppose we have committed as a council to retain that site for recreational activity. So obviously that would mean going away from what it is zoned for and there was a lot of um, I suppose the public um, refusal to accept that and it's been taken off the consideration and I think there are other sites that are privately owned indeed. I think that should be considered as well, not just, you know... uh, And was there any discussion from central government of what services would come if there were modular houses built, what wraparound would come with it? No. Not to my knowledge, Brendan. Yeah. Yeah, okay. which is which is a real problem, I think. Kieran, you Th- want to come back in? That's the of the issue, Brendan. What is the plan? Like the government aren't doing themselves any favour here. What what is the plan? Is there a plan and communication? I they are building the plane while it's taking off, so to speak. True, in fairness. True, but the the problem is, for example, the direct provision system, which was meant to be emergency, which they were building as it as it occurred. We're now 20 years later, you still have 7,000 people within that system. There doesn't appear to be a plan for, for what happens next. What happens next with the with the 76,000 people in in these clearly unsuitable uh, accommodations and in hotel accommodation when, when we need the hotels or the hotel owners need the hotels come the tourist season? What happens with uh, uh, people living in those accommodations? So I think there's there's a need for a plan at least a short term plan a six month eight month plan and to communicate that plan so that there isn't a rise in these protests or in this worry about you know the government could counter a lot of this by communication of a plan as to what is to happen what are the numbers what are the services as you say that are going to be offered yeah I suppose they don't know the numbers Brenda you want to come back in there and I mean just coming back to the statistics in in, in the, the Sunday Business Post Poll suggesting, at least Richard Cornwell suggesting, that there will be another 80,000 refugees due here this year by the end of 2023. So, I mean, that is going to double the numbers who have already arrived. So, you know, when we're in a situation where we cannot house or accommodate those who are already here, this situation is is much more urgent, I think, than the government seems to be prepared to acknowledge. Danny, um, are you getting any sense from politicians as to whether they feel there's a... Any answer to this? I saw the the, the junior minister um, who's responsible Joe for Bryan, Joe Bryan last night basically saying, look, we know, y- yes, we know. Yeah. <laughs> but, and all I, all I can say is, I, I'm be- I, he was kind of begging the people that they're engaging with, public and private organisations, I gather, yeah. to please, in the negotiations, try and bear in mind that they're desperate here. Yeah, which, and, and, and that desperation, I mean, to, to Rodney Edwards' piece, I mean, you know, putting people in these sort of situations is clearly a sign of desperation that the state hasn't got enough you know, ready access uh, places to put these people in. The use of tented accommodation in wintertime is not a suitable place to be putting people anyway. Um, I think what you're seeing... There's a recognition at political level that Roderick O'Gorman has an awful lot on his plate, you know, in terms of that, you know, that, that he had tailor-made a ministry for himself in terms of direct provision and all the other aspects that he had wanted. But yeah. simply he has been... Children. Children, uh, um, integration and all the rest of it. Disability, which, yeah. like... You know, so yeah. there, is a, there is a sense that, you know, there is too much on his 
plate right. and too much responsibility. And it, it was akin almost to you know giving Stephen Donnelly responsibility for hotel quarantine in the middle of COVID nineteen when he needed a health service to run in, in, in a certain way. There was too much responsibility being being placed on, on one minister's lap. I think ultimately, Brendan, what you're saying these are the, the, the state. Uh, capacity to move quickly and move agile or move in an agile fashion is severely limited. It can happen in very specific circumstances. It happened during COVID when we were able to ramp up money but that was you know for a very short period of time. When it comes to housing for some reason housing was described as an emergency by Alan Kelly eight, eight nine years ago when he took over and we still see these row going on between the Central Department of Housing and local authorities about when and where houses are going to get built. In terms of the state's capacity to deal with this initial uh, or this immediate crisis, you know, the response at the moment essentially is don't come to Ireland anymore or don't come for the foreseeable future because we have nowhere to put you. Um, and that there's a hope at government level that that may filter back to Ukraine and may filter back to the other countries. But you're seeing what you're also seeing, I suppose, is the large number coming in from Ukraine. You're seeing an awful lot of people coming in under the international protection um, criteria, a lot of people coming in from Georgia. A lot of people coming in from some African countries as well. And again, ultimately, that is, I think, largely caused by by the refusal of the UK to take them in here. So there is this very, very intense pressure on the system. But what I think you're also seeing is the government's inability to get on top of it. Okay. If I can add a bit, I think it's not enough for there to be a declaration that um, we can't accommodate these people. So when you come in, take your details, give you a dunce voucher, there should be um, some level of support given to enable them to actually go out and seek private accommodation. And that should be extended. So, so just... hang on, are you saying that we, we, we should, if we... If we can't accommodate people, you just you just say, look, we can't accommodate you. You need to go out into the market and look for accommodation. No, right. I'm saying that in terms of the circumstances now, yeah. if the department is saying that we don't have the, the um, space in City West to receive um, the, the international protection applicants or the refugees, when they come in and if they're going to be given a don't voucher to say, look for accommodation for yourself, how about giving them temporary work permits? How about allowing them to go and actually be able to seek the accommodation and be able to look for work in a temporary basis, register with the local guardian, whatever community you end up in, and then be able to support yourself. That will take some of the pressures out and that should be even done to the people in direct provision centres. It's not fit for purpose and there is a white paper to end direct provision by 2024. So these are ways that they can actually show the willingness and show the determination to actually end direct provision, allow people to get themselves employed. We have... Just just if I can interrupt you for a second, what I'm also hearing from you, though, is that you want to maybe have less of a dependency model that you're saying to... Okay, you're saying to... You're you're saying to open up the situation a bit more to allow people to work and everything, but you're also saying that they should go off and stand on their own two feet. I am saying that if the department feels that they are constrained in housing these people or giving them those supports initially at the point of entry, then it's not enough to just let them go off and look for somewhere, give them the wherewithal to be able to support themselves when they indeed find some sort of um, accommodation eventually in the short term. I think that would be an ideal situation. It's very difficult to find any kind of a job from a position of homelessness. And I mean, we have plenty of evidence of that on on the streets already. If you have people who are apparently 26 asylum seekers were left without state accommodation after arriving on Friday, that was 81 last week. So that's 81 people added to the homeless numbers on the streets already. And, you know, I suppose they would say, well, it's easy to say, find a job and and get yourself accommodation. A, we know there's no accommodation available in any of the big urban centres that is remotely affordable to people on on a basic wage. And and secondly, how do you even begin to look for a job if if your concerns are keeping yourself warm and sheltered in, in, in the middle of January? And a lot of these new immigrants are coming from situations and they're clearly traumatised. They're not in a position to even Mm. seek employment at the moment because of the trauma from which they're coming and they need other supports. They need health supports. They need supports from psychiatrists, psychologists. They need all these supports. So it's... it's Although some of them do listen again to the interviews last week. They're coming from Germany. They're coming from the UK. I mean, those are are countries where they could equally seek asylum, but they're they're choosing to come here. I think having that... What's your point, Brenda? Well, I mean, I, I just, again, you know, the question is whether or not there should be a sort of, you know, a, a 
a message communicated to these centres from which they are coming that actually if you land in Ireland you're going to be sleeping on the streets. Yeah, well, if you I, think have that, somewhere, I think that message was If you have somewhere to sleep maybe yep. you're better off staying there. Yeah, the and I think that's exactly the message yeah. that was communicated. Yeah. If you are safe and secure wherever yeah. you are, don't come here. Uremu, can I ask you um, a broader question about this? And look, I'm asking you because you're the person who's best placed here to answer this question. There's been a lot of noise around this. We see that poll today. We see that sense of that there is a turning, right? And then we've seen there are stories again in the papers saying they've been they've been kind of going on for the last week or so. Various stories of um, black people talking about their experiences of racism here and everything. Do we have more of a racism problem than we like to think we have in this country? Is the racism problem getting worse? Um, I think there is a, a racism problem in Ireland, definitely. And I think uh, part of the, I suppose, part of the difficulty is the, um, I suppose, the system, the legal system is not set to actually um, deal with the problem in terms of the hate crime legislation. And uh, that is, you know, there has been there has been a call for hate crime legislation, and what is happening is even when people are reporting these inc- incidents to the Gardaí, they are restricted in what they can do to the the perpetrators because they can't prosecute. There's no uh, legal basis to go after these people. So until there is legislation, we are going to have this problem of racism, of discrimination, of, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's beyond racism, but I think it's not a problem that cannot be fixed. And the first step to, to fixing this problem uh, and this scourge is, you know, having the hate crime legislation so nobody can hide behind, you know, the, the, the greyness of, of the, or hide behind being ignorant of the reality of their actions or their utterances. So, okay. So you, so you, you think start with legislation in terms of attitudes, how, how are they in your experience? Um, personally, my own personal experience, I, I have encountered a lot of, um, I suppose, a p- lot of positive relations with people. So I am fortunate in, in my experience, with my experiences. But I, I know I've heard stories of people who have had negative experiences as well. And, you know, attitude is, is dependent on each individual, how they choose to act. However, I think the, the strength of legislation is if you choose to act in the wrong uh, and end up on the wrong side of the law this is the is the punitive measure that you're going to meet with and it does check people's attitudes to a large extent okay okay and i suppose we're into then as well of course policing the internet which we're having not much success at so far kieran and it'll be interesting to see how this feeds into the political system in in the next election in the last election uh, candidates for anti-immigrant parties and the far-right didn't do well at all. Uh, yeah. I think James Reynolds in your constituency, uh, Amy, did the best and he, he performed very, very poorly indeed. So as of yet, we haven't seen this uh, uh, seep into yeah. the political system. But not not to all. invoke uh, the horrors of history here, but we have seen how parties like that can jump from 1% overnight True. to yeah. 20-30%. Yeah. We are, some, as an outlier, we are, Ireland is somewhat of an outlier. We're way behind, say, like, so other European countries have seen a big jump in far right uh, 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 groups kind of get, you know, kind of become established in the political system. We're, you know, we, we haven't seen it yet. Thankfully, we haven't seen it yet. Okay. But I do think, to Kieran's point, I think the next two elections then will be very interesting to see if there's a change. But also, I mean, the suggestion appears to be, and I, and I don't think you can you can dispute this, that um, the, the, the highest level of disagreement with the suggestion that the objection to refugees is only far right and driven by the far right was higher, according to the Sunday Business Post poll, uh, amongst those in society who are more under pressure, those with less income and more deprived areas, the less well-educated, and crucially those who plan to vote for, for Sinn Féin. So in other words, if people feel themselves that they are being disadvantaged by immigrants or refugees then they're more likely to object to them that's a no-brainer I would have thought Yeah, yeah and again we're back to mm. being careful about not dismissing people as deplorables mm. or whatever and yeah. back to communication and listening and everything Okay um, now we're going to talk about uh, Enoch Burke we are not going to have a hop on on Enoch Burke Enoch Burke is not here to, to defend himself um, but there is a lot across the papers today. Um, will we start, um, Brenda, with uh, 
Elisha Hanlon has an interesting piece. She has read uh, Enoch Burke's uh, oeuvre. He's written some books that are available on Amazon, apparently, and she's saying dismissing him out of hand is easier than trying to understand him. Yes, I, I mean, I think this piece definitely takes takes the, the, the Enoch Burke saga forward because effectively, from, from what Elisha is saying, the, the Burks comprise a, a sort of 12-person cult or a religious... Okay. Religion, all to Let's themselves. leave the rest of the family out of it. Yeah, but okay. I mean, this, yes, well, his, his own beliefs then. Yeah. He, is, he is basically almost, um, said he's, he's like Martin Luther nailing his thesis to the door of the Catholic Church, kickstarting the Protestant Reformation. He's attempting to raise a standard against what he sees as the hypocrisy of his fellow Christians. So as you say, he has written a number of books, The Pied Piper, Hedonism and Homosexuality. Um, so he's basically, he's, you know, we, we've been conditioned to believe that everyone wants acceptance and, and dealing with somebody who is, A, quite happy to go to prison and, and pay sort of indefinite fines for his belief is, is, really, is, is really difficult to get, get your head around. So, but basically, he's, he's, his books show a clear affinity with the fire and brimstone Ulster Protestantism of Ian Paisley. He is against, for instance, he's against dancing and, and singing. So his, his beliefs are much more complex and far-reaching and um, maybe totally inconsistent with, with modern um, beliefs and, 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 and liberties than, than I think anybody has understood up to now because there has been a perception that this has been a very straightforward you know, dispute with the school, but actually, what's what's driving it and what's underpinning it, it takes much more, you know, figuring out and drilling down into. Yeah. Okay. So it's you know, um, it's 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 just impossible to deal with somebody. And I think somebody else is making that point when there are no sanctions that would prevent them from persisting in their beliefs. And of course, history is, is littered with people that we have admired for being prepared to go to prison, go to jail and suffer mm. the ultimate sanction for what they believed in. But that's fine once you once you admire what they believe in. In this case, there's very little support for Enoch Burke's yes, convictions. Yeah. It's, he's very, very deeply held beliefs. I, I do have a certain amount of empathy for him. Like he's been ridiculed and pilloried uh, and, and with this chaotic tilting against the windmills of modern... Society. He spent 108 days in, in Mount Joy and, and willing to spend probably more. So I, I do have a certain empathy for him. Um, and he's, he's got yeah, such we, deeply held yeah, we principles. We have to have empathy for I, I agree. He's everyone got, here now. And that he cannot exist in this modern society. But I agree with you. My heart goes out to the principal and students of that school. I mean, this is unacceptable. He cannot. And that particular uh, student who feels exactly. at the centre of all yes, this and everything. It's, it's reprehensible. Uh, I really feel for the principal of that school and for the students of that school. And, you know, he needs to get out of get out of their way is to, to let them have you know their life to get on with their life and for him to stop intruding on their life because it's the not acceptable said, the court did um, suggest there was a certain amount of sympathy for his position in respect of his suspension and dismissal but you can't expect the court to vindicate your rights on the no. one hand while on the other hand saying well I don't accept those parts of your judgments that don't suit me no, yeah, he, he so, can't so, in, so the way he chose to go ab- about it maybe is is uh, a bit questionable. Okay, uh, we'll take a, a, a break. Our panel is staying with us: uh, Daniel McConnell, Remu Adejimi, Brenda Power, and Kieran Mockenverd. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. Welcome back. Our panel still with us: Daniel McConnell, Uremu Adejimi, I beg your pardon, Brenda Power, and Kieran Mockenverd. Um I'm not reading out any text because we have been inundated with uh, texts. I'm told most of them are uh, are unreadable on those two topics. So I think we will uh, we will we, 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 <laughs> we will move on uh, to Brenda. I read this story in the mail twice and I feel I kind of understand it. The front of the mail, this story about secret plan to block Mm. refunds for old and sick. But if I do understand it correctly, this is enormous, is is it? This is a really big story. This is a seriously big story. Basically, what it amounts to is the entitlement of of elderly people to state care, to free state care. So in 1970, there was a health act. The health act. And it entitled 
every old person in the country to free state to free state care, care. Yes. to free state care yeah. to go into a care free home. State care. But then it turned out that some patients were being unjustly charged. Either they were they had uh, medical cards which were not covering, I think, the full extent of their of their their charges, or else they were they were being forced to go into private care because the state was not in position to literally f- put find beds for them. So it, it basically the the the, the, the Charges that are now, at least the, the, the refunds, if you like, that are now due to the families of these people fall into two headings. And the sum they could amount to is as high as 12 billion. Um, in, there's one group of people who are entitled to, 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 to refunds. I think it's 5 billion in respect of, of um, overpaid charges and in the other in respect of refunds for care that they had to pay for themselves. And, and the, the state way effectively this was dealt with, yeah, was just to fight them. But what's happening is apparently and, this and is to a, keep it quiet. So to keep that. it quiet, but 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 what the mail is saying is that there is a strategy that has been agreed by successive governments to take a particular legal approach to this, which is to fight them each and every one until you get to the discovery phase of of the litigation. At which point, the state would have to hand over the documents which prove that these people have a claim and then to settle as quietly as possible with them and to basically wait these people out. And the sum involved is as as much as 12 billion. Um, I mean, in in 2005, the Supreme Court ruled that people who had paid unlawful charges or their descendants were entitled to recover this money. That's a Supreme Court judgment from 2006. Daniel, in, have you been? Are people aware of this story rumbling along there, or is this new? Or well, I think the detail what Michael O'Farrell here, has here today is new. What's not new, and in fairness to Michael O'Farrell, he's, he doesn't get these sort of things wrong. In fairness to him, he's a brilliant reporter. Um, what is not new to my mind is the strategy from the Department of Health. Look at what they did to cervical check. Look at what they've done to other people who have found themselves, you know, wrongly treated by the state. They have fought them tooth and nail at every point. As it, as is their job to try and save state money where they can, we yeah. should say. But I think, Brendan, in fairness, there's also a way of, you know, there's a moral obligation on the state to treat the people that it has failed properly and it has failed to do so in this case. What you look at the language here is, you know, keep this under wraps. Yeah. Don't tell anybody. Like as Brendan said, sweat them. So this language is in official yeah. state so let me documents. Re- let me read, so there's a document here from uh, a 2011 document. The fear is that if the details of, of the cases, the legal strategy and settlements were to gain public profile, it would spark a large number of claims. It is therefore important that this litigation is handled with extreme care, discretion and confidentiality. So is there is there a chance that this now is, gains legs and turns into a massive scandal? I would have thought so. Okay. And I would have thought so in terms of the fact that what you have here is a clear slam dunk in terms of that the, 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 the failure of the state or, or the actions of the state um, you know, have been found out. They're 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 having to kind of settle with people who are determined enough to to bring it to a certain point. There are others who don't either don't have the financial resources or are not well enough to to take this case on. And they're the ones ultimately that the state are saying, well, we'll just sweat you out and and let you let you kind of uh, fall away. If, okay. de- if their descendants are equally entitled to claim as that Supreme Court court judgment suggests, then that might not be a strategy that, that will work. Now, particularly that this has come to light, and and you know, just to continue that that quote that you read out, Danny, the, the liability to which the state could potentially be be exposed is would be uh, if the case were lost. You see, they don't want to go to court and lose a, a case because in that case, the, the the adverse precedent would be very substantial indeed. So, I mean, and they're heartbreaking. This this came to the mail from a, um, a protected disclosure by a Department of Health whistleblower called Shane Corr and it includes some really heartbreaking letters. One, this one from a 1989 letter from a pensioner who was left with £28 a week to live on after funding his wife's wife's nursing home care. He said, um, I, I have to pay, £65 a week was what he was paying. He said, out of the 28 I have left to live on, I have to buy and f- I have to feed and clothe myself, pay bills, and also buy essentials for my wife and sometimes a few luxury items like diabetic orange and sweets. I mean, these people okay. were left in penury because of this strategy. OK, so we'll, we'll see how that uh, plays out over the next while. OK, listen, we're not going to spend too long on uh, on SIPO and uh, election expenses and everything, but you did pick out some stories there. Um, Uremo, you picked um, Maeve Sheehan's story in the Sunday Independent. SIPO secures one conviction out of 24 cases of rule-breaking. Yes, Brendan, I think um, it it doesn't instill a lot of confidence, uh, to be honest, if um, there is such, I suppose, I don't know if it's, uh, again, goes back to to, uh, legislation, what are the punitive measures? That is the way you can really draw a line. And I suppose, 
you know, get well, rid of the noise. Well, there seems to be nothing in. between either do nothing or else a person resigns. But is there isn't much in between, is there, by way of sanctions? Absolutely. And it can't just be um, handled on a case-by-case basis. I think it is it's best to have the set punitive measures if this happens, this is the consequence and everybody is aware of it. You know, Have you had to fill out um, SIPO forms, election expenses, stuff and everything? How, how, what's your experience of how the system works? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's very hard to, um, it, it, it is indeed difficult to navigate and you have the time having to ask and, and look for guidance and to ensure, obviously, that you don't end up on the wrong side of, of uh, your your requirements. And, and does your party g- g- have a system for, say, l- candidates locally, like, to help them do these things? Not not to my knowledge, Brendan. So um, you get the you get the forms by the, the local authorities, you get reminders and you get guidelines on how to fill the forms and it's up to each individual if you need support or if you need anything explained to seek that explanation either from your colleagues or from the uh, from the local authorities. So it, it can be difficult, especially if there's changes to the guidelines or changes to the to, to the seculars. It's up to each individual to make sure there are obviously sessions where where there's changes. They they do uh, they roll out training sessions for um, councillors and go through the changes in the uh, in the document. But by and large, you are expected to get your house in order and you know make inquiries if you're unsure. By the sounds of that, Danny, what Rain was saying there, there must be there must be local candidates all over the country like who have their their affairs in a right mess as regards stuff. Not just at local mean, level. Yeah, I know, know but I'm know, just uh, saying absolutely. that's just. Yeah, one, yeah. one layer of it, like, yeah. I, I think it cuts to the point, right, so SIPO produce an annual report and at the back of their annual report they will list a number of recommendations that they have asked for government to give them more yeah. powers and all the rest of it. Some of those recommendations go back to 2001, 2002. So, like, successive governments have failed to take on the recommendations of SIPO, I like they can't investigate or instigate their own, you know, uh, complaints. They have to wait for someone to to complain. That is ridiculous in this day. And you know, what we saw around the Robert Troy incident in particular was that you know it's a snapshot in time, like an audit almost. But if you if you have your houses in order on on those days of audit, you're fine. Yeah. But nothing. You in could between. be an, an international arms Absolutely. dealer in, the term, in, in between. between. As long in as between. you turn it around, fast. as long as you turn yeah. around and your audit is fine. Um, also, as well, I, I think what you saw in relation to the Pascal Dunahoo uh, affair. I mean. Like I think there was a collective running away with ourselves to a certain degree. We got, you know, our, ourselves caught up over a very, very small amount of when money. When you say yeah. ourselves now, are you pointing the finger at the media for... Well, as someone, like, I was one of those people who had a story on the Saturday the yeah. year before his uh, statement. A story is a story. A story is yeah. a story. Yeah. But, like, it was the reaction to it. Uh, and I think it's now what has what's fascinating is that, you know, because we're now all looking at... You know, the expenses complaints of or expenses returns of, of every politician now, how the worm has almost turned on Sinn Féin now and its own sort of uh, failures to to properly account to SIPO. And it, it's having to kind of go back on its 2020 uh, forms repeatedly now. I think it's up to four times they've had to go back on their forms. So you would wonder, you know, um, the proportionality of all of this as has been argued. But there is a wider point is SIPO needs more powers. It needs stronger powers. It needs a clearer system of accountability. You know, as Aremu says... Was Barry know, Cohen right about that? There should be there should be various levels of slaps on the of wrist available to, uh, course, like, uh, I mean, without, without it either being all or nothing uh, kind absolutely. of thing. And I think also as well, like I mean, the, the, the cause for a minister to resign from office is a very serious you know, it's an event, you know, that if you get to a position where a minister's, you know, tenability in office. So it shouldn't be over every small thing. It shouldn't be over every small matter. Was the Pascal Dunahoo event a matter of resignation? I'm of the view it wasn't. There were, And it was what was noticeable, there was very few opposition TDs in the Dáil Chamber on the day that he was questioned. Like some, like Joan Collins didn't even take up her speaking slot. Sinn Féin, you know, yeah, walked out en masse after their speaking slots were finished. So like the, the heat had gone out of it. But, you know, it still dominated the political agenda for, for almost two weeks when we have much more serious matters to, to be talking about. Yeah, Kieran. Yeah, I think it, it's actually, it's disappointing that SIPO has such little power, such little 
uh, it's it's described in Maeve Sheehan's piece. Yes, yeah. over his lack of teeth, and that's yeah. the way politicians want it, and that's that's the way it is. But it doesn't give us any confidence in the political system whatsoever. And the politicians seem to be thumbing their nose at us. I mean, in, in Hugh O'Connell's piece below it, he says, you know, Damien English got a round of applause when he came back to the Fine Gael party. So, like, what what's that message giving to to us, the, uh, the voters? Yeah, sorry, Brenda. That's what I was going to say. You know, to the layperson, the idea that all you have to do when the supposed watchdog finds that you have, for instance, in Sinn Féin's case, made multiple errors, uh, accounting errors, that all you have to do is amend the record. Imagine going mm. to the revenue oh, with I that made, particular excuse when you've been mistake. found to have made accounting errors <laughs> on your tax returns. And they go, that's fine, just change it. There doesn't seem to be any there are any consequences. Mm. You know, when, when Robert Troy's case emerged last August, I think somewhat something like seven other Oireachtas members came out and amended their returns Again, without consequence. Mm. But they didn't include Damien English, who mm. could have done it at that time and didn't again. You know, he, he only resigned because of, or resigned as a minister, not as a, as a, as a TD. Brendan, reminds me as well of the saga of the, in terms of Briefly. vote gate, very vote, yeah. vote gate, you know what I mean, from where people were kind of pushing the button for their colleagues in, yeah. in the Dáil Chamber. They did it because they didn't think they were, they were ever going to get caught. They, think they did it because they thought they could get away with it. It's only when they do get caught that the system has to kind of retrofit itself. Like, we're long since past the point where we need a proper watchdog over political expenses and expenditure. And hopefully, yeah. hopefully, this is the wake-up call that, 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 that requires I think us. we've had a few wake-up calls before, but hopefully <laughs> this is this is the this one. Is this is the one. <laughs> OK, listen, there's a, there's a good, few more things I want to get to, but um, there are a lot of housing stories today. And... Um, Kieran, you you picked a lot of them. I suppose one of the stories today is uh, summed up in Killian Woods's piece in the Business Post. Developers push back against new land hoarding tax, and there are variations then of various building developer people across the papers pushing back on it. Yes, developers are pushing back against the new land hoarding taxes, which probably means that the land hoarding taxes are a good thing. We see it on the Times as well. Hammerson claims that zoned land tax will hurt housing supply. I mean, in a week that we got relatively good news that there were 30,000 units, as they call them, or homes uh, um, completed, we also got the equally bad news that uh, homelessness is up uh, 10%. There's over 11,000 people now in emergency accommodation in the state, uh, over 3,000 of them children. And when you think that we are one of the richest countries in the world, it's shocking to have such a level of homelessness. And looking across the various papers, the various stories, I mean, you know, we, we have all these schemes. We have the Land Development Agency, the Housing Commission. We have so many agencies dealing with homelessness. I mean, it, 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 none of it is, is addressing the problem. The problem is actually getting worse. I mean, what we need is we need to look at this problem in its entirety and to have, you know, a coherent strategy, a coherent plan. Yeah, you see, I think, I think what, the, what the government or the minister would argue is that, like, that people sometimes sit in, in situations like this and and seem to expect one big bang solution, but that it actually is all these small kind of uh, different the, schemes to for different situations. But it's not so much a big bang. There's no silver bullet for this. But it, you, when you, you need to look at it on a 10, 20 year and on twenty year basis, and to take it almost out of the political system, to take it away from the fluctuations in economic activity and and the political uh, system, and to look at it in its entirety. To start with, so the planning uh, uh, process, the land banks, the financing, the developers, engineers, and the trades, and to have it all. Yeah, I think in fairness, in, they are looking a, at all of those in things. In a coherent like, yeah. okay. one piece with okay. with one agency or one task force. It, the Taoiseach described it before Christmas as an emergency. It is an emergency. You have various people, even developers today, calling uh, um, there's a piece by on Paul Mitchell in the Sunday Independent. He calls it an emergency. Um, okay, and would you agree with him? He's looking for, uh, we saw there that Mitchell McDermott report for 460,000 to build a two-bedroom apartment in mm. build-up area. Now, mm. He's saying zero VAT, zero stamp duty. Would you agree with that kind of thing? You, you would... 
in a partnership, yes, you would agree to some. Okay, of it. if there were some conditions but, with but, it. Okay, listen, Michael O'Flynn got on to us last week or the week before and said, "You're all sitting there. Not one of you knows the thing about building houses or anything. We don't have a builder here this week. We have a Ramu who presumably are. Are you facing the the cold face of this <laughs> in the local council situation? Yeah, absolutely. We oh. have a heaving um, list for social housing. We have a heaving list of people who are just above the threshold for social housing. So are in need of affordable housing. There is a real need. It is indeed an emergency. And have you, know, you any have you any answers you could offer from your experience? Um, I think this um, this tax is is heading in the right direction. If you look at the stories you were talking about, um, uh, speculate property speculation, people having uh, planning permission approved and not proceeding to build for whatever no, reason. Equally, they will say. Uh, I, I see Conor O'Connell from the Construction Industry Federation saying a a lot of that land is not serviced and that's why there's a delay in building and B he's saying that a lot of them are apartment uh, permissions that just aren't viable at the moment well they can uh, offload the property. Uh, uh, that would be, that would okay, be, uh, right. you know, move, if, if it's not viable. Move it on to someone, on. if you exactly. don't want to do it, move it yeah, on to someone exactly. who does. Okay. And, and another thing I want to highlight is also the uh, the appeals to planning applications as well. You have uh, about 29,000 uh, appeals waiting with Ambal Planola. That is also impacting on the availability of uh, of houses for people to, uh, to live in. You have a... Uh, 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 50%, 59% of single housing development applications yet to be decided in the last year. And so equally, are, I will say in, in defence of, of, of the government, of which your party is part, that they are now dealing, they would say, with the, we have with the planning. Least, absolutely. And okay. there's the Creek on her scheme that has been, it's, it's slowly been taken up, which is great I, I, I for I see 2,000 um, well. potential um, dwellings being yeah. built under under. Creek and if Kona. I might just add one single yeah. point there, apologies, Brendan. One just more. in terms of the the uh, modular housing, which is another option for for providing housing more readily, I'm sure that if they're looking at putting a, a double figure numbers of housing in in site, that they sure as hell is a plan for wraparound services. So I would okay. encourage the government to be highlighting those as much as they're talking about the numbers going into communities. Okay, Brenda, really briefly before we leave this, uh, you picked out. Uh, John Walsh's piece in the Business Post today, he he makes this very kind of uh, kind of obvious point in the middle of it that if houses aren't viable to build at these prices, when are they ever well, going to exactly. be viable? When are they ever going to be viable to build? And I mean, as somebody with with a house full of young adults now who are going to be looking for houses and and really should be. You have what, for houses, five, five young yeah, adults yeah, at home at with home. you at the moment. Yeah. At the moment, uh, you, well, you're, maybe. you're running a commune there, practically. <laughs> <at this stage. laughs> Pretty much. But I mean, when you see figures like that New Housing Commission report, which suggests that up to the year 2050, by which time it will certainly not be concerning me, that we're going to need 62,000 new houses every year. Like there's a piece in, in, in again, in the mail by John Lee, and he's quoting, I think it's an unnamed government source who said, look, we, we don't disagree with Ronan Lyon's analysis of the need to ramp up to 48,000 to 62,000 on average between now and 2050. The question is, how? And when you look, for instance, at the objections raised by those developers who are pushing back against the hoarding charges, they say, first of all, judicial reviews, of which there are also 29,000 in the past uh, five years holding up holding up planning permissions. There's 100,000 uh, planning permissions uh, on the books already which have been granted um, and that's what prompts it, the, the suspicions of hoarding, but also the information Infrastructure, obviously, threat judicial reviews, infrastructure. There are a number of developers arguing that the potential for discovering archaeological remains on the sites is also potentially holding it up. So, you know, you have, you know, talk about, again, phrase yeah. I don't like, the perfect storm. There is absolutely every stage is hindered by some... Yeah, the character of the old buildings in the Clanliff Road now have, have put a halt to that for the time being, I see. OK, uh, we'll take a break. Our panel staying with us. Uremu uh, Adejimi. Uh, Brenda Power, Kieran Mockenverd, and Daniel McConnell. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. Our panel still with us: Uremu Adejimi, Daniel McConnell, uh, political editor of the Irish Examiner, I should say, and also the editor designate of the Business Post. Congratulations, Thank Danny. You much, Brendan. They're making that. you work out your notice in the Examiner. Obviously, they think I'm of some use, so I can. nice to be wanted. Absolutely, uh, Brenda Power and Kieran Mockenverd. Kieran Mockenverd, you picked out. There are there are very interesting stories actually about uh, on Colleen Kuhn and the background. 
mm. to it. You picked out a few of them there. Um, tell us first, uh, the Mail on Sunday have a great story on how basically they, they, the people who made on Colleen Kuhn leveraged uh, all the, a lot of well-known Irish people to kind of get behind this campaign. Yeah, it's a fantastic story. Uh, um, um, Colleen Kuhn, the first ever Irish language film nominated uh, for an Oscar award. It's really wonderful. It's, it's amazing. And, and, co- and well deserved, we oh, should say. It's a magical It's a beautiful, film. beautiful it's a, film. Yeah. I saw it a few months ago and I'd advise the listeners, you know, encourage them to go and see it. It's back. It's in multiple cinemas in Dublin. And I think you'll get it on some of the streaming services. It's on YouTube services. for it's a, four it? euro. Okay, and it's I think, I think you get it on TV. Apple TV uh, for two. 99 or yes, something are well worth that and, and amazing performances across the board and yeah even and if you think you're not going to like it yeah it's a beautifully shot film and it's evocative for those of a certain generation of our youths like it's like bringing you back to your childhood it's really really beautifully shot and Cohorges O'Cree congratulations to Cullen Barraid and, and Cleona Nicruoli and all the crew they did yeah. a beautiful job on it it's wonderful and it's it's from so, so tell us about the Irish stars then who all got behind this and, and did the you, did you pick out that story in the in yeah the, there's, did, there's yeah. a story on, on um, uh, how there's a, there's a picture of Cullen Buried with with Michael Fassbender, uh, um, and it goes on how you know uh, uh, it brings back to a drama school in 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 Killarney that they attended. But uh, and, suppose- and, and and Fassbender then went and collected Colin Barraid from Dingle to drive him over to give a talk at the drama school. So he, Colin yeah. Barraid didn't have his car with him. Uh, international Hollywood star uh, uh, Michael Fassbender came and collected him, and then I think Michael Fassbender did. Uh, an interview with Colin Barade, uh, a video one, which was part of the kind of uh, materials that was sent around to Oscar people, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think Kerry Condon helped them out. And Pierce they, Brosnan. Yes. Pierce Brosnan, yeah. And, yeah. and this, it's, it's uh, Colin Kuhn, so it's, there's this scheme, Cinefors scheme of TG Cahar Fischeren and the Broadcasting Authority. And it's a scheme whereby if you have, they provide funding up to 1.2 million for uh, screenplays, uh, uh, ask Wilga to produce them. And it's it's been quite, uh, it's been excellent uh, to date it's got uh, films such as you might have seen some Aracht which is a, yeah. a totally different like you know it's on the famine Fosca Tarak and, and Finky so it's wonderful it's it's a brilliant achievement and, and uh, hopefully on the 12th of March we'll be celebrating the first Irish language uh, uh, prize at, at an Oscar ceremony yeah. I think Fantastic. they're unlucky to be up that? I think they're unlucky to be up against All Quiet on the Western Front this particular year because that has that has been nominated for Best Picture as yes. well and that's in foreign unfortunately but a, it's a difficult watch in a way but like also magnificent yes. Like in terms of just the very simple message that war is hell. Like you know, we can we forget that lost, when we're we sending off tanks and we're going to bed traumatized. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't watched it, but it, it's it, like it's the sort of movie I think it, you'd watch it once. I don't know if you'd be rushing back to see it again, but by God, it was no. I could be watching it every Christmas. It's not love actually. Or <laughs> no. Whereas Colin Kuhn, I'd, I'd like to see again. I watched it when it first oh, came out last March, uh, last May, and the only sound in the in in the cinema at the end was people sniffling. The very emotional payoff at the end. So I, I have well to go. Within. I have to go check it out now. So, but um, there's also actually a call for um, an increase in the cap of tax relief to encourage more uh, film production in in Ireland. I think that was. Uh, uh, Senator Shane Castles in in the in the Sun. So yeah, and and, and the thing is, and 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 actually, uh, Colin Murphy has a very good piece in the Sunday Indo. None of this happened by accident. Like yes. there, there, it's the support that's been given. Going back to uh, Passion Machine and go, all through all those things. Um, listen, we have we 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 don't really have no. I'm going to make a call there. We don't have time to get into uh, anything else. Um, so listen, thank you very much to the panel. Listen, we got loads of engagement on so much stuff today. Um, there are a lot of people with um, with uh, various questions on property <laughs> and landlordism and everything else and that. An email from Juras if there are subtitles in on Colleen Kuhn. 
Jer, there are. There are. Jer, I think you find if you have the settings on your TV right near of a certain age, there's subtitles on everything <laughs> these days. Watch it, that's great. Uh, yeah, Watch so, it, that's great. Yeah, uh, we, we leave it there. So uh, d- uh, thanks to my panel, Daniel McConnell, political editor at the Irish Examiner, Uremu Adejimi, Fianna Fáil councillor in Longford and former Lord Mayor, Brenda Power, journalist and barrister, and Kieran McInvert, who is head of the School of Funter at DCU, and also, I should say, which I didn't, assistant professor of business and Irish at DCU and uh, just coming up to 12 noon we will go to the newsroom now and Kate Egan